0: chapter 11, verses 13 through 34. And I'm going to read that section to us uh, together first. If you do have your own Bible, uh, in whatever form you have that, I want to invite you to open up and follow along. I think it will be helpful because we'll look at a couple of other verses before this text <clears throat> as we get into it, just to make sure we understand what's, how it's all fitting together. Uh, so let me read to us from... First Corinthians um, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those with nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of God. Pray that he adds his blessing to it as we try to take a look into this and see what's going on. And the title there, The Invitation of the Lord's Supper, is to take a hard look in the mirror. Now, the Lord's Supper obviously is designed as something that, as Paul has said, is a blessing. And it's something beautiful. If you were here last week... You, it was a difficult text, but we tried to get the sense of what Paul was saying uh, there. It's about head coverings, and we were talking a lot about the context of it. And he started that passage saying, I have something you know, good to commend you about, but here he starts differently. In this directive, I have no praise for you, because actually the meetings that you're gathering together are doing more harm than good, and that's obviously not a great thing. And... The the neglect of the actual purpose of the meal, which was to be a celebration of unity, and a leveling ground that the gospel reminds us is always the case. Instead, it's leading to tremendous harm. And so Paul says, let me offer a pathway that's a corrective to it, and that involves some serious, hard soul searching. So let's look at this, and it, it divides nicely and happily into three different sections that, uh, that come together uh, as Paul drives home this message. The first thing he talks about in verses 17 through 22 is that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, but their celebration of it is self-serving. That's what's happening here. It's, it's a little confusing. It, like with the previous texts that we've looked at, it comes into a bit more focus if we understand the setting in which it was written. So in the Corinthian church there, we've talked a lot about in the previous text about feasts and gathering and part of getting together and sharing a meal was part of the Corinthian culture. And that has become a part uh, as well of what you would call the Christian culture, really throughout history too. Sharing meal, having something in common where you come together and break bread, uh, signifies all kinds of things. And so this was an important part of their gatherings. And uh, apparently the Corinthian celebration of the Lord's Supper was attached to larger meals. If you read in Jude 12, they talk about love feasts. Some people have what they call agape feasts. Still, maybe to this day, think about what happens at the Redeemer house last week. A little bit of like that. I mean, we're bringing meals together and we're sharing it. But in this particular instance, some people had lots of resources that they would bring and have lavish meals. Some people, say in the working class, who were working the night shift and could barely get up, especially when there was an hour change. <laughs> had a hard time getting there. So the picture is that they would gather together as a church and have a great feast. People would bring their own food, and if you had a lot of, of resources, you could bring a nice meal, whatever your favorite thing was, including wine, And so they would begin to enjoy this feast together. In fact, they would get started a little bit early. You know, if you're somebody who has means, you can get there. You can start eating. You can eat a lot. You can start drinking. You can drink a lot. And some people were getting drunk. They just drank a ton. And they had a lot of stuff. In fact, so much that by the the time others had arrived, nothing was left for them. And so Paul says here, if you look at this in verse 20, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. It's not really the Lord's Supper. It's your own meal. For as you eat, in verse 21, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. Now, I don't know about you. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper. The context helps a little bit. Because if this is all you know of the Lord's Supper, and we don't even have wine. But some people do. If there was wine there, you kind of get this picture of somebody coming up and just drinking the entire thing and nobody else gets it. He didn't wait. So, our context is a little bit different, more structured, a bit more orderly, and we're not attaching it to a larger meal either. So, to get into the mind of what Paul is saying, it helps to picture them coming together in that setting. And some people arrive to celebrate and enjoy a feast, which is gone. And some people are just sitting there and have had, it's been turned into a party. And there's nothing left for others. One remains hungry. People are actually hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now remember, Paul has been talking about, even from the beginning, not many of you are wise by human standards. You know, the only reason you're here is because of what Christ has done. There are some of you who are wealthy, but the majority of you don't have much. And those who don't have much really understand more easily what the gospel is all about. Because you're well-suited to understand, I'm not bringing anything to the table, so to speak. Nothing in my hands I bring. I'm just clinging to Christ who's given me value when other people have diminished that. And for those who have resources oftentimes, it's difficult not to say, look at what I've done. And to to say, you know, yeah, I love the Lord. Because I have so much. It's easy when you win the Super Bowl to say, Isn't God good? You know, this is all for God and his glory. And Paul says this is a real problem because you are a community drawn together, and you're making this something all about you. And that's the exact opposite of what the gospel is trying to say. So this isn't the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. This is your meal. And he's upset about it. And it does, it's actually so, so So counterintuitive to what the gospel is, you're doing harm when you get together. It's not even neutral. You're actually making things worse by doing this. That mentality of what's in it for me is something the gospel is supposed to remove. And that's why he says, I have no praise for you in this. And if you've been here, hopefully you've seen this trend because Paul's been talking really in the immediate chapters, about the opposite mentality. My mentality, if I'm a follower of Jesus, is is so shaped by his sacrifice that I'm looking how I can sacrifice even my own rights for others and my own preferences. Both. Look back, if you will, for example, in in chapter 8. Just... To go back a little bit, chapter eight, verse nine. Be careful, however size that the ex- Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. He's talking about food sacrifice to idols, and the principle here is that you have some freedom, but you need to make sure that when you practice it, you're not causing somebody who's weak to stumble. That's the mentality, right? That's not self-serving. There's a very different thing about saying, I have a right to do this, and so I will, versus I have a right to do this, but how is it going to affect somebody else? How will it be perceived? Not not only, Paul says, by those who are inside the family of God, but those who are on the outside as well. That's what chapter 9 is all about. In chapter 9, verse 12, We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder hinder the gospel of Christ. Look, I'm willing to tolerate a lot, even some things that are uncomfortable, whatever it may be, because I want the gospel to go forward. I'm not going to compromise my values as we saw for that, but if I have a chance to flex in some way, I will. That's the mentality that's supposed to be baked into my Christian DNA, Later in in chapter 9, verse 22, this principle is carried out so much, he says, to the weak I become weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all, all this, for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. The reason you're doing this is not because it's, you know, cool or some HR principle you think is worth working out and you're, it's because of the gospel. You're doing everything you can to remove any barriers that keeps the gospel from going forward. That's the mentality he carries into chapter 10 as well. Look at chapter 10 verse 24, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And, and right above that, he gave a little glimpse into the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The, the picture he has of the Lord's Supper is a picture of unity. And the way it was being practiced, people show up and there's nothing left for them. And Paul says, that's exactly the opposite of what it's about and what I've been talking to you about. In fact, if you're somebody who has much and arrives early, you ought to sit there and just wait for others to arrive and maybe even let them go first so that you know what it's like to be hungry. That's what he says it looks like to be part of the body of Christ. In 1031, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, and then he says, "Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ." So he's saying, "Look, when I talk to you about the Lord's Supper, I'm doing it not only as an admonition to you and what you're doing, you know, and twisting it, but I myself have given up my rights. And guess who I'm following? Christ. This is th- this practice that I'm encouraging you to do rightly." Is not anything that I haven't done, and I've done it only because Christ who saved me did it. He is my example. And so Paul considers this a grievous affront to the intent of communion. You are only thinking about yourself. And so in the next verses, in 23 through 26, he talks about celebrating the Lord's Supper. Don't come together thinking you're celebrating your own supper. This is the Lord's Supper. And guess what? That's about self-sacrifice. You're only thinking about serving yourself? The very nature of and meaning of the Lord's Supper is of sacrificial love. Giving yourself for someone else. Um, These next verses are all about what the Lord Jesus did. And look at this in verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and that's always struck me that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, the Son of God, was going to be given up, he is instituting something for the good of the church. So he, he himself, he is, he's going to be struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane with what's happening, but he's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about those who are left behind. He's instituting something on the night when he's going to be betrayed, and ultimately sacrificed and bear the weight not only of your sin, but everybody's, and the wrath of God, which is what the cup he would have drunk would be. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about 2023 Redeemer Church person sitting in your chair on the night he was betrayed. He's doing something that's for your benefit See, that's self-sacrificing. The very nature of the Lord's Supper is thinking about somebody else. Christ is thinking about you, if you're one of his own. He had your name somehow in mind when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His very body for you. And the you, of course, was those who were in the room and by extension, all who would have faith in him. This is a self-sacrificing act. He took cup afterwards. This, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And when you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. Remember That Christ gave himself for you. When you take the Lord's Supper, that's the point. He has sacrificed himself for you. And here you are, getting together, having meals that only celebrate yourself. No wonder he's frustrated with them. And he wants to rightly get them into the framework of saying, well, hold on. When I do this, it's not about me. It's about others. In fact, it's about the Christ, the Messiah, who poured out on our behalf his very blood. Which makes us right with God. And when you drink it, you do it in remembrance of him. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You, when you take this cup and this bread, you're proclaiming something. I mean, it's a number of things you're saying. Number one, I belong to Christ. But also, I believe that his death his payment was on my behalf. And that it's a down payment of something yet to come. You're making a statement of faith when you come up here. And you are declaring that you are also entering into a narrative that says, how can I also be self-sacrificing? See, it's more than just individualistic. This is all written in the context of community. And Paul says, you've misunderstood you know, th- this, is, this is about Christ sacrificing for you. So what does it look like for you to sacrifice as well for others? Not in the same way. None of us needs a Messiah complex this morning. There's only one Son of God. But he sacrificed himself so that we too can sacrifice for others. John Piper says, The Lord's Supper is not a mere religious ritual. It is a call to love. It is an indictment. On lovelessness that this this supper is a call to love, Christ himself loved us. in fact, if you remember the context for the lord 's Supper, like in the Gospel of John, um, when he bends down and, and washes his disciples feet, he talks about this new commandment that he 's giving them to love one another. That is where this institution began. Uh, Back in Jesus' day when he was loving on his disciples, in John chapter 13, verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Remember Paul's talking about an example. He's following the example of Jesus. And Jesus served others sacrificially. That's what leadership looks like. And so he says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So the Lord's Supper is about love and loving others in a self-sacrificial sort of way. I know many of you are familiar with the revival that happened uh, down in Asbury, not far away. Uh, just, just a few weeks ago that carried on for some time. One of my pastor colleagues who uh, pastored a church for many years in Kentucky and then left to kind of talk about faith in the public square, Christ for Kentucky. He leads uh, a group of people. He's He's a great writer, a great thinker. And how does Christ play out in public space? He was invited by the person who spoke at chapel that morning Before the revival sort of occurred, he was invited, he's a friend of of this guy's, to to come on down and and listen. Uh, But he had some other meetings that were rearranged, so he wasn't on the campus that day. Um, So he he notes that, you know, maybe God kept him away to make sure the revival would actually still occur. Uh, Who knows how all that stuff comes together. But if those of you who know the story, uh, know, know the person who spoke before at chapel... I saw, like, they shared a, a, a text or something because people start writing about all this stuff. Back to his wife about how he dropped a bomb. You know, when you when you give, give like, he performed badly. When, 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 you know, you're a pastor or something, or even if you speak, you give a presentation, oftentimes you'll step back and say, well, that was awful. Uh, sometimes, a lot of times. Some people live in constant regret of everything they've ever said because it's like, oh, my gosh, this is just terrible. And he did that. He said... Uh, he said something along the lines of, everything fell flat, I don't feel like it made any difference whatsoever, and he went away very discouraged. But if, if those of you know that what, what his closing uh, admonition was, uh, the guy's name was Zach, the, the admonition from his chapel sermon was to, to, to linger until students were overwhelmed by God's love and equipped to likewise love as they have been, as they have been loved. That's what he did. He, he gave this message and he said, look, just stay here until you're overcome. with." Love. I'm not looking for a revival today. I'm just telling you this is what happened. He said, just stay here until you are overcome and overwhelmed by God's love and equipped to likewise love as they have been loved. So you have just stay until you feel God's love and then you can go out and show it to others as well. And then he just left. Afterwards, and throughout the night, they prayed. They continued praying, singing, and gave attention to reading and preaching God's Word. And other students joined, and others from the community, and then the state, and then all around the world. It went on. And he just went home thinking he'd just been a failure. Now, you know, there's more often that happens. You leave, and you're like, Ugh. And nothing ever occurs. And in God's providence, he just used that in that space and time to stir in the hearts of God's people and to, to, to launch something pretty, pretty amazing. But when I was reflecting on the reality, that's really what the Lord's Supper is all about. Thinking about God's love and equipping to likewise love as you have been loved. That's what the, that's what the Lord's Supper is in, because the demonstration of that is the death of Christ on your behalf. And that love then, if you grasp it, this is a sustaining grace that goes on and on. It's designed so that you can go and love others. I mean, the entire Bible, love God and love others. It sounds so simple. Obviously, it's not because we've got a very thick book here trying to work that out. And we're all trying to figure it out too. So there are some simple principles. What it looks like, that's why we gather together. That's why we're in relationship. But this is the central point. The leveling ground where we realize none of us is better than the other. And we each desperately need to remember the gospel over and over and over again. Because if you try to do this in your own strength, forget about it. It's never going to happen. You can't just put revival on a calendar and think it's going to happen. So this this is about God's love and his self-sacrificial love that so fills us We can love others, and Paul looks at their practice and says, I don't see it happening. And that should be troubling to us, as troubling as it is to him too. And so what do you do about it? I'm not content. I want to do something about it. Well, Paul says, this is the take a hard look in the mirror part of the message. All right, you're self-serving. It's about self-sacrificing. What do you do? You look at yourself, self-examining. Whoever drinks the cup or eats the bread of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What do you do? A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. In verse 31, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And he says, he connects here some of the sickness and even death. The practice was so egregious that there were consequences, that we put in the context of God's discipline. He does too. He loves us. What parent w- who loves a child and who's in self-sacrificial love doesn't give boundaries as well, issue out consequences of sin? Well, it, that, that's not what love looks like. We all know that. Husbands are jealous of their wife's love. You should be. And, and so there's, there's that piece of it And if you're somebody who thinks, oh, am I sick? Am I dying because of this? Well, the good news is you don't have to wonder about that because he gives a corrective here. This is why it exists so that you can take some time to let God's Holy Spirit examine you so that you make sure you're not eating this and drinking this in an unworthy manner. So just a a couple of thoughts here too for us to think about as you try to diagnose that. Where am I cherishing sin? Or where are we cherishing sin? So I didn't want to just do this individualistically. It can be a collective reality too. We are a community. We're a nation. You're a people group. We all bring something, again, to the table that we're cherishing. And that's a very broad statement. Paul talks about cherishing sin, hiding it inside of your heart. So let me kind of tease this out a little bit. Maybe consider questions like this. Where am I or where are we harboring bitterness? Don't let a root of bitterness grow up. You know, sometimes it's, it's funny, this picture of bitterness. It's like you're mad at somebody for something and you cherish, you just kind of feed it, and, you know, give a little bit of water. It's like Seymour or something like that, girl. It's like the giant, you're like, you sort of start liking that. It feels good to not like somebody else and to remember about how you've been hurt by them. But it's wrong. It's sin. I mean, you proclaim Christ's death till he comes. You're holding something against somebody else. What do you think Christ has to hold against you? The one who's perfect and holy and sinless. And yet he forgives you. He died for you. But we harbor bitterness. And I don't know what this looks like. You know, even a question like this, where am I destroying unity? Where are we destroying unity? That seems kind of vague. But any, anything I'm doing that's creating disunity. Uh, maybe you're blind to the needs of others as well. I just don't see it around me. It's nice not to see it. Because you know what happens is it raises up some questions inside of me. And it creates conflict. Should I meet the need or not? And yes, there's boundaries and all kinds of stuff that we have to deal with. But if you see something, you're just blind to it. Do you think Christ is blind to your need? Thank goodness he wasn't. Maybe you have some self-examination to do this morning on just where you're being selfish. Maybe you're driven, or we are, collectively, by what's in it for us? What do I get from something? Uh, maybe maybe this, this morning you're like, I just realized I feel entitled. I have a right to everything around me. And usually when you get angry, underneath that is something you feel like you deserve has been attacked or taken away from you. And Paul's been talking a lot about idolatry. It starts showing you that you're trusting in something other either than God's justice or in his provision. Maybe you could ask, where am I apathetic or jaded? Where are we as a culture? Eh, so what? I read a phrase the other day, sin shrugs at God. Yeah, And that can be me. Or you're just so tired of being just tired and you just grow jaded you don't believe God can change anybody he does other people but not the people in my life he heals other people but he'd never heal somebody in my life that's growing jaded and hard hearted and it's understandable and it's frustrating but the Lord's Supper erases all of that aren't you glad that Christ hasn't given up on you That he just didn't say, I'm so tired of you coming again and again and again. What were we dealing with this last? It's like my journal. Dear journal, sorry I didn't write for three months. (laughs) Again, dear journal, sorry. I know, I know, I know. And then eventually you just throw it away. (laughs) Where are we refusing to offer forgiveness? Where am I refusing to offer forgiveness? And there are deep warnings here. Because the Lord's table is receiving forgiveness that then you're supposed to extend to others. And when you say, I will not, I refuse to, there's, there's quite a warning there. And I know you don't have to get everything cleaned up and figured out before you come and take this. It's the intent of your heart. If you're satisfied in that, it might be time for you to say, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe God needs to do some work in me. If that's the intent of your heart, though, I don't want to live in this. I am so tired of being angry. I'm so tired of bitterness. I'm so tired of hypocrisy. I'm so tired of apathy. I'm so tired of refusing to believe. I need Jesus. Then you qualify. Because the last thing you need to remember is you might be refusing to receive forgiveness. That's what the table's all about. So as much as all those other things say, well, you know what's the state of your heart the last one is very important this is a table of forgiveness and th- this might be the place where god starts melting your heart and many of us just refuse to receive it and then you see what you're doing is you're minimizing the death of christ as well and you're kind of in a no win situation just receive his forgiveness but receive it in full not in some sort of smoke and mirrors way that says, I'm going to continue to work this out on my own. He says, that's what the table is all about. It's the great leveling ground. And you see how that can be a table of refreshment then, because it's not saying I've arrived, it's saying I know I haven't. And I need Jesus. I need him so desperately. I cannot do this on my own, and I don't want to any longer. That's what the table is for. That's the goal. I know this is Bill one of Bill's favorite verses for good reason. It's one of mine as well. You know David who was a man after God's own heart but committed terrible sin. Complicit in murder and adulterer. How was he called a man after God's own heart? I, I, I sit there and think about this a lot. You, if I know somebody who is complicit in murder and adulterer, I don't think, gee, there's a guy after God's own heart. I think, where's the jail time for this guy? Where's the justice? And he did experience grave consequences. But the reason he's extolled as a man after God's own heart is because he felt the sting of sin. And he knew the only way he could be forgiven is if he came to the only person against whom he really wh- he offended. There's the people you offend in, in real life, but underneath and behind all that, they're made in God's image. You've offended God, no matter who that person is. And so he said, against you and you only have sinned. He felt the strength and the weight of, like, his bones were being sapped from energy because of the sin that he bore. And it wasn't until he confessed his sin that he felt God's heavy hand lifted on him, off, off of him. And he felt the freedom of the soul that comes from that. With an intent then to go and to walk in God's way so no, no longer these things that Paul is writing about seem restrictive. They actually create freedom because you delight in God's law. You know this is what gives you joy. And so you have to ask God, search me and know me. Examine me. And if there is something in me, and certainly there is, then lead me in the way everlasting. And here's the way everlasting Jesus knew you needed what the way everlasting looked like it's Him, it's His body given for you, His blood shed for you. That is the pathway. Receiving that. And this is what's fantastic about the person of Christ as well. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. Such a high priest in chapter 7, verse 26 and 7. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is the person of Christ. He's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. He's the only one who's like that. He's exalted above all the heavens. And even all these other people who served well, these high priests, the difference between all of them and us and Jesus, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, no, because he was perfect. Instead, he sacrificed for their sins once for all. When he offered himself, not self-serving, self-sacrificing. And that is where we need to end. That's where we need to get. But the pathway to getting there is some hard looks in the mirror. Because when you come up here and what you're saying when you do this is, I know apart from the grace of God, I have no part in this meal I know apart from God's grace, I'm going to leave this place and automatically start thinking about me, my kingdom, my people, my benefits, my glory. And Paul says, that can't be. I have no praise for you. This table reminds you that you are a sinner saved by grace, period. And when you go out then, this is the only pathway for for self-sacrificial love. Because otherwise, when you give love to somebody and feel like you deserve it back and they don't, what's going to happen? Jesus, Well, we were still sinners. He died for us. We didn't clean ourselves up and all of a sudden become worthy. We recognize we weren't. And that is the path. That's the gospel. And that is why we need to live in it again and again. And we forget so easily. That's why he gave us something to remind us again and again we desperately need him. And this is then the source of strength to, to have any success moving forward in loving others. One of the reasons I think Paul is so hostile against the concept of idolatry is that it's just a false god we're worshiping. This is the god we worship, the one who gave himself for us, so that we can give ourselves for others. So throughout the week, then, when we're struggling with how are we loving others or, or feel defensive or feel slighted too? Then we have a chance to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How can I walk in this gospel reality of self-sacrificial love? You will fail. That's my encouragement for this, this week. You will fail. And when you do, what do you do? You go back to the gospel. Don't blame somebody else. Don't, don't, don't act like some, everything's against you. There's only one of whom that's really true and he gave himself for you and others as well. So when we feel, you know, guilty, remember the gospel. When you feel like somebody is mistreating you, remember the gospel. When you feel like you're not getting what you deserve, remember the gospel. Who wants to remember the gospel? I do. I need to. And one of the things on the night he was betrayed, he said, here is a way to continue remembering the gospel in living color, in physical, tangible taking it in so that you will always remember that he is here for you, that he gave himself for you, that he's the high priest who sacrificed once for all when he offered himself. Who qualifies? All those who admit their need. That's it. In, in some ways, it's a low bar. You just have to recognize I am a sinner and I need God's grace. But unless God's at work in your heart, you'll kick against that, like Paul did. When Christ finally caught up to him, he said, hey, why you been fighting me, bro? You've been kicking against the goads, you know? Christ has been trying to lead him, and he's like, no, 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 no. And I, I hope it doesn't take being blinded for you or knocked off a horse or a horrific car accident. You don't need that to prove that God, God's there or that he can rescue you. It's right here. And that's why Paul says this is something we need to celebrate. And when we celebrate it, we need to know what's happening and examine ourselves and do it rightly. Father, I do